Welcome to The Sword and the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. A big thanks to our fan members. If you're part of the Founders Alliance membership, uh, we are grateful for your support and uh, excited about continuing to upload content to you there in the armory and continue to resource you as you labor for reformation in the church as well. We've been really looking forward to this conversation because we have Tymon Klein on the line. Yeah, Tymon Klein, who has written, um, I think, the only article, I can say this safely, the only article in the Founders Journal ever to have been published that has 192 footnotes. So, <laughs> 192. I counted them. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Hey, Tymon, welcome to uh, The Sword and the Trial. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Timon is graduating next month in the midst of this pandemic from Westminster <laughs> Seminary with a Master of Arts in Religion and uh, decided to go ahead and graduate from Rutgers Law School as well at the same time. So he Just will double be, up. Yeah, you know. So what do you do in your spare time? In my spare time, I, uh, I write about critical theory. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we appreciate you joining with us. And, uh, man, the, the article, I don't remember. I think, I don't know if you sent it to me or Tom Nettles or something, but I don't remember how I first. I think, I think Dr. Nettles is who I sent it to first. And, uh, you know, you made the comment about the length and the footnotes, and I, I was totally conscious of that, sending it to him, and thought for sure he would, there's no way he'd be able to do anything with it. So I actually, is a little dishonest, I, I made the font smaller so it looked like it would fit <laughs> on a page, on less pages, and tried to, you know, make the footnotes downplay them just because I thought there's no, it's way too long, it won't take it. Yeah, I used to do that uh, in seminary. I'd, I'd make the font larger, you know, so I wouldn't have to write as many yeah, pages and you know, look like I was, had content on the page. <laughs> Yeah. But he, but he was, he liked it. So uh, I, I was so pleased that you guys were willing to entertain such a crazy idea. Yeah, it's been great conversations, and Jerry and I've talked through part, parts of it, and we've done it with some other uh, staff members here. It's been really good, and I think it's a, a wonderfully useful article for this particular time. And again, the footnotes, 192 of them, I haven't read every one of them, but I can tell you I got lost in some of them, man, because I'd click through and I'd click through more. And the, it's just gold. The stuff that you've gathered yeah. together is valuable. So I would say to everyone, read this article on identity politics and the bondage of the will. It's in, I think, the fall edition of the Founders Journal, fall 2019. Yeah, fall 2019. The journal's called Critical Theory and Christian Theology, and you can uh, we'll put that in the footnotes so everybody can get access to that. Before we even get into maybe some of the content, Tommy, just take a step back. Why, uh, why did you write this? What sparked you to pick up your pen and deal with critical theory? Yeah, so, um, you know, this... I went to a, uh, ended up graduating from a, a, a secular state school for my undergrad and uh, was exposed pretty unwittingly to, to a lot of this. This is, is this type of thinking is uh, ingrained in a lot of disciplines now, as we may end up talking about. Um, but I, I remember going through classes that would be, you know, race, gender, and sex, and business, or, you know, what, whatever it was attached to but was uh, not a, a hyper-aware student in my undergrad years and just kind of assumed this is 
this must be secular and uh, and or liberal thinking that you can kind of dismiss and move on. Um, and then I went to uh, to grad school, to law school, and uh, was exposed to, as time went on, you know, it's not like there's a, a critical theory 101 course every law student is taking. But this, especially as you get into upper level courses, uh, especially policy courses where you're looking at uh, different contemporary issues that are kind of a developing thing, uh, you will see more and more of this this type of thinking that was becoming recognizable to me. But again, you know, this, there's crazy things that go on at universities, and uh, in some ways they should be that way. But when I, uh, you know, during the 2015, 2016 years began to see some of this stuff crop up in discussions between Christians, and specifically at certain conferences, out of certain speakers and certain publications, uh, that became pretty concerning because I, I knew enough to at least be able to identify uh, something of what it was and that I had seen it before in a different context. Um, so that's when I, I started uh, taking it serious to, to get into it, to really uh, read the you know, primary sources on a lot of this. It's endless. And, uh, you know, I'll never catch up to what Neil Shindy's doing. Uh, he reads, he must read one of these books every day or something, but he, uh, I, I say I, I can't do that because I'm busy with grad school, but he homeschools like four kids. So I don't know what my <laughs> excuse is, but, he, uh, you know, there's, there's endless stuff out there. And I, it's surprisingly enough, uh, they, these people are very honest about what they think and what they're, they're doing most of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as I said, it was once, you know, you started seeing some of this talk crop up in especially 2016. I mean, the, the 2016 political scenario right. changed a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and this is, this is one thing that rose to the surface and you had certain conferences going on that, uh, this talk, uh, was, was coming up at. And what, so what conferences, yeah. Um, I, well, I remember, you know, certain TGC and, uh, ERLC conferences that mm -hmm. year that you mm -hmm. would, uh, were, were commemorating the, uh, the legacy of MLK, which, uh, I found troubling for, for lots of reasons, but you had some of this talk there out of certain speakers. And I think really after that, I see that as a, a moment in, in all of this, at least for evangelicals that marked a shift. Uh, and a lot of that was because I think there was some objections raised to the, the nature of the conference itself, which then seems to have changed the discourse where people felt comfortable uh, responding to that criticism in a certain way, that, that it didn't seem to be present before. And that's where I think especially after the conference, the fallout of that conference, uh, and, then, and then some other unrelated ones. You know, have, you have certain people like, uh, Akimini Yulon that right. has done, uh, you know, the Sparrow Conference and uh, other other ones that that were unrelated, but those those all come afterwards. So the the 2016 MLK 50 Conference uh, seems to me to be a big moment for all of this, at least for how explicit everyone was being and what they were doing. Yeah, I think that might have been uh, 2018. I think that was a like a. Oh, was the MLK 2018? I, think it I was, was thinking it was 2016. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. It's 50th anniversary. Okay. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that that um that conference, though, I think is really when you got to it see was, it was afterwards. Pivotal, I think yeah. it, I think it was a pivotal moment. Whatever year it was, it's all 
this feels like it's 2025 <laughs> at this point, but it's it still, you know, April. So no, but, uh, but yeah, that, I think those, I remember that summer, it was in the summer, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. uh, you got, you started seeing a lot more out of, out of Christians, right? That's what oh, I yeah. yeah, was, right. was concerning to me. Um, and you, and along with that, you also got to see, uh, some responses and there's been, there's been good responses out of a lot of Christians. I think the, the kind of impetus for me writing this article was, uh, you know, I, I think it would be great if Christians were, uh, able to look at, at some of this talk that's, uh, typically referred to as identity politics talk, but there's an underlying coherent ideology behind that, which, mm-hmm. uh, is, is coming out of critical theory uh, and all of its offshoots. So I think it'd be great if Christians could look at that and identify it as a as what it is, which is a separate worldview and religion that's fundamentally antithetical to, to Christianity. But it doesn't seem that, that people are doing that. And so, uh, you know, you're going to have to take this step by step, I think doctrine by doctrine to a certain extent, to prove to people how incompatible it really is. Uh, and I was seeing a lot of good responses on on this front, uh, identifying what what critical theory is. And like I mentioned, Neil Shindy earlier has done a ton of that work. Um, more of you know, it's encouraging to see more and more leaders like Carl Ellis and Owen Strachan and different people. Al Mohler, of course, is is on point as always with this stuff um, coming out against uh, the thinking behind identity politics. But what I didn't see was a lot of people engaging with the ideas of, of critical theory uh, at a at a very granular level and taking a doctrine, a particular doctrine that conflicts with it out of orthodox historical orthodoxy and Christianity and showing how that how that is or how that exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't see a lot of that. So that was why I started started writing this one was, yeah. was to try to do that. I think that's. Well put, and uh, that's quite honestly what we have been grappling with as well because we're grateful to see guys dealing with this on a theoretical level, and that's mm. beginning to happen, and you know, praise God for it. It's been uh, more vocal mm. over the last year or so. But our concern continues to be when is this going to be dealt with on the ground level? And that's where yeah. it seems like the theory stays at 30,000 feet, and here we are on the street, man, and this stuff is overwhelming us and we need resistance. We need to defy it. And that there doesn't seem to be a lot of that going on within evangelical leadership right now. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a difficult task. I mean, I did, you know, this, this article addresses an issue of anthropology Mm -hmm. and that seemed to me to be the most natural starting place. Um, because of what I I'd seen going on, but if you're a systematic theologian, uh, you don't you don't usually begin there. You begin with your theology proper or or some other doctrine. So it's kind of you have it's weird to try to figure out first of all what critical theory is doing, uh, which you have to go to to good sources to do that to figure that out. Then you got to figure out what primary areas of of Christian theology are being attacked by by this alternate worldview, and the one that you know, stuck out to me because in every conversation I was hearing it would come up is the the dignity of, of people, right? That's central to the, the social justice movement and especially in its Christianized form, uh, the dignity of people in the Imago Dei is, is frequently invoked, right? That's, that's almost the beginning of every conversation. 
and it certainly resonates with Christians and tugs on your on your heartstrings because we do care about the dignity of people. The the problem is is no one was ever defining def- defining what that is or, or what we think about the dignity of people and why that's a distinguishing uh, mark not only of the Christian worldview but a, but a, a, of course of Scripture from where we draw it. It's it's all throughout it. Um, so that was seemed like the natural starting place is you have to address uh, this thing that everyone's talking about, and it's kind of getting them purchased in the conversation to be able to talk about uh, this other way of viewing the world and pursuing justice and human dignity and figure out if, one, they're defining it the same way, and two, if their theory allows them to do that and to, for us to have any common ground in, in this area. But And so the anthropological and social uh area is where this conversation, you know, is primarily taking place. And uh, I think the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was, was going to say, you've done a, a, a deep dive here into kind of the, even some of the historical roots and then dealing with the anthropology yeah. um, as seen from critical theory and then over against um, Christian doctrine. As you, one of the things that has been said is that whatever the, say, Reformed evangelical community did with critical theory, it wasn't really being played by critical theory, right? It was just maybe we were just kind of using the tools, we were washing some of the mm. ideas off. Mm-hmm. And we, so what we weren't really being duped. We were, it, critical theory really wasn't um, making significant inroads into evangelical life and thought. And I'm I'm fascinated yeah. by your having experienced critical theory in another field, like you say in your studies, yeah. your studies with law. You've yeah. you've seen it, and then you saw it um, crop up in evangelical talk. So yeah. uh, it might be hard to go all the way to the abstract here, but if you were to look back over the last couple of years between the conferences and the teachings, things you've seen, how much does um, critical theory actually map on to what you've seen in kind of the reformed evangelical world. Is it, is it true that, um, reformed evangelical world really wasn't, um, trying to use critical theory or is your assessment that no, there was absolutely, you're going to have to go back here and pull it out by the roots because there was some real, um, mapping going on. Yeah. I I mean, it's a, uh, this, this, in some ways, is a multi-layered question or a diff- difficult one to answer. At the, on the most basic level, or the highest level, I would say there, there's, with no doubt, in my mind that it is it, it is real critical theory in its in its contemporary form. I mean, this is how ideas develop; they don't stay stagnant; they keep moving. So, I think Neil Shimby and Pat Sawyer will call it contemporary critical theory. Uh, you know, James Lindsay has called it critical social justice, uh, whatever you want to call it. The contemporary form of this way of thinking, which has not departed significantly from its roots, but only expanded or added on to it. There's no doubt that that is influential in broader evangelicalism, uh, as, and certainly the SB, SBC and certainly the PCA. I mean, I think there's uh, every, you know, the, the documentary you guys Put out, it would have been sufficient just to do video clips of, of speakers because that's proof enough. <laughs> you could have done five hours of that. You think, you and would, it think would that would be sufficient. enough? <laughs> you would, you would think, and that and that stuff is out there. Same thing with the PCA, you know. So the two biggest uh, denominations mm-hmm. in that in that way, it's all out there. 
to see. And I'm I'm kind of tired of the the objection from people that we don't uh, that the rest of us are incapable of figuring out what what critical theory is and then being able to identify it in real time. Mm. So the mm. the constant, and I think actually the conversation is starting to move away from that initial objection to admitting that, yes, this is what we're doing. Now we just want to defend our use of it. I mean, that's a lot of what Resolution 9 starts to do, is you move away from the the initial conversation was, no, 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 that's not what this is, to now, yes, that is what it is, but it's compatible, or maybe we're using it in a limited way. Um, So that seems to be where the shift has gone. But I don't, uh, that discussion of how you can use this um, the, the question that I've kept asking people that no one's able to answer, and I don't because there is not a good answer, but no one's been able to answer it, is what is the indispensability of, of critical mm-hmm. theory? Because mm-hmm. we just uh, just the other day, you know, Jonathan Lehman gave a speech on at the T4G conference on identity politics. Right. Uh, and one of the deficiencies of that speech is that he treats identity politics as a phenomenon that's cropped up in a vacuum, which is without ever really addressing the underlying ideology, which is critical theory thinking. Uh, but the second thing he d- does, and I think they're, they're connected, is he you know, t- wants to talk about how identity politics is an unexpected ally. It, mm. t- it teaches us things, reminds us of things such as the pursuit of justice, even though they don't mean the same thing as we do, or the uh, uh, you know, other systemic sin potential for sin at a, a systemic level. The problem is, is those insights are not unique to critical theory. The right. ones we, we pull out and want to emphasize, they come from other places. The reason Lehman is able to draw a parallel there is because we already think that. So it's not bringing us something new. So what is the indispensability of this way of thinking that justifies the risk of getting, you know, within a hundred yards of this stuff? That's interesting. Uh, and no one's been able to answer that. I'd love to riff on that for a little bit because I I haven't watched this or heard this from Lehman, but it just strikes me as saying like Darwin's an unexpected ally in the pursuit of science. Mm. You know, it's like, mm, I mean, well, I mean, I get it because the the subject, you're talking about justice. And if you say, well, they're not even pursuing the same topic as we are. Um, mm. but they're kind of pretending to do it. Well, like, yeah, you can look to other places and see that kind of thing. But at least what you said there is what where I do feel a lot of people in the Reformed Evangelical world are. They're like, hey, you know, we really can learn. We can learn something. Yeah. From, mm. And you're right. They're missing the underlying. They're missing that this is another religion. And I don't know if you go, mm. if you would go back to the Hegelian dialectic, or I, I've used language mm-hmm. as just this materialistic world. I've got, I use language of Peter Jones stuff about oneism. It's, it's basically a worldview in which there is no God. Secular humanism might yeah. be the easiest way to say it. And why why are we having such a, a difficult time helping guys to see that void between secular humanism and the critical theory and the intersectionality that uh, that grow out of it and the Christian worldview? Why why can't we why can't we help guys see like it's a dumpster fire? Just burn it down and don't think about it. Yeah. No, I I, I think and in fact one of the uh, if you read. Uh, Roger Scruton's writings on on this type of thinking, he calls it humanist Marxism. So it is emphasizing uh, some of those those roots and what they're what they're doing. But 
I think the, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, there's all these offshoots, as I mentioned in the article of, of critical theory, you know, you have feminist theory, of course, and it's, it's third wave here, but, and then you have family theory, queer theory, you know, critical pedagogy, all these kinds of disciplines. But the one that's obviously most, uh, in play now is critical race theory, right? And especially in the SBC, but I, I would say in, in America generally, it's critical race theory that's having the most influence because of certain historical, uh, you know, facts about our country and even the, the SBC denomination that people have to grapple with because mm -hmm. sin is, is real. Um, so the, the critical race theory seems to be, uh, you know, serving a need for certain people who think that their theology is deficient to address certain problems. Um, and this has come in at a opportune time and it's useful. I mean, what I've, you know, Jonathan Lehman for, to go, not to hate on him, but it's just the most recent one. Um, I, I very much appreciate Jonathan Lehman. I've learned a lot from him. His book, political church is a good book and I recommend it to people all the time. Uh, but he, uh, so he's a very smart guy and he knows his stuff and he knows his, general political theory and all those kinds of things. So it's interesting to me that he, uh, in, in that speech the other day was, was doing that. Um, to me, it's, it's somewhat, you know, I can't speak for him, but it's what's happening a lot where people are scratching and clawing to find common ground with this stuff because it serves a particular need. Um, which is a way to deal with uh, racial reconciliation and justice issues that are being emphasized by our culture right now um, and are, are things that have been in conversation in, the, in evangelicalism for a long time. And this seems to be a new way of a fresh way of talking about it and thinking about it. And uh, as people often say, race is different. Uh, in the way that you you treat it, and this is is proving you know it's become a self fulfilling prophecy in many ways because we are treating it differently. We don't treat any other subject this way, where uh, we don't address another problem this way as we have uh, the discussion of racial reconciliation and the use of, of critical theory. So I don't know if that answers the question well because I don't have a good answer for why people are unable to see. Uh, how diametrically opposed a critical theory mindset is to a Christian one. But I think on a very instinctual level or on a uh, less kind of um, seriously thinking level, people are adopting some of this talk because it's convenient and because it helps, it seems to help with something that we've been un unable to solve up till now. Yeah, or, or I think that... Um I think people are easily manipulated emotionally on some of these issues, especially oh, sure. like, like race. Yeah. You look at it, no yeah. denying the horrific things that have happened. And so you feel Absolutely. badly about that. And here comes somebody that says, okay, if you feel badly about that, really, then this is what you must see. This is how you must think. This is what you must do. And yeah. what you said a while ago about the in indispensability of critical theory, what, can somebody show yeah. you that? That's a great way to frame the question because we can learn all kinds of things. You said Darwinism and Nazism did a lot of research in trauma research and trauma therapy. You know, we could learn from Nazism, but who in the world would ever say that's a good idea? Maybe a hundred years from yeah. now they might. Yeah. And it feels like a sleight of hand to me to take yeah. these categories that the Bible speaks to. 
like uh, mm-hmm. I think in your article you mentioned the commodification of people in capitalism. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Marxism criticizes that, rightly so. But mm-hmm. you don't have to go to Marx to learn how to treat people made in the image of God. And why yeah. in the world would you? So to do that and then to say, oh, here are the insights, and if you really are going to stand against racism, you've got to become now, you know, what's this anti-racist movement and buy into yeah. these principles of allyship. And uh, it's just, and it's a sleight of hand. We're mm-hmm. being duped. We're being played. I think the, um, well, you go ahead, Timon, I'll follow up. Oh, well, I was just going to real quick off of what uh, you were just saying then the, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And the, uh, you know, you mentioned anti-racism, anti-racism as a concept is a perfect example of, of what you're talking about and how people are handling it. Because, uh, one of the things I think is attractive about critical theory is to say it's essentially prevents, uh, presents a unitary explanation for the world. So mm-hmm. it's a totalizing theory and it starts, uh, making everything make sense, right? Things become much less complicated all of a sudden. Uh, but because it's a totalizing theory, you can't uh, be arbitrarily pick and choose how you're going to apply it. So anti-racism, which I've heard, you know, evangelical pastors present as something akin to anti-sin right. is the idea right. there. And that's not the idea. If you read Abram Kendi, the, the idea is uh, it can't just be I'm against racism. And by the way, the definition of racism has changed. Right. So it's no longer just about I'm against uh, hatred of other people because of the militant content of their skin, of their skin. But now the definition is all of us have prejudice. That's just assumed without any proof. We're all prejudicial. Only white people are, have the systemic privilege and power to be able to exercise that prejudice. And so they are the only ones who are racist. You have to have uh, systemic power to right. be a racist. And so to be against that is to be an activist against it, right? You have to be breaking down the power structures and problematizing the, the social narratives that are told by the dominant culture. But Kendi also says to be an anti-racist is to be anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia, anti-Islamophobia, all of the phobias that people are accused of. So you can't be an anti-racist unless you're also defending uh, homosexuality, right? That's the, he says it's total, it's everything, all or nothing. And so the problem with, uh, like you're talking about, you know, people being duped is you're adopting things that are not quite clear on the surface. Uh, and you think you're doing something good. You see one insight that you like, and you're trying to grab onto that, but critical theory doesn't allow you to be uh, selective arbitrarily. It's all or nothing in, in this stuff. So that, the idea that these are separable analytical tools doesn't seem at all consistent to me with with the theorists themselves. Yeah, the um, you calling it um, an absolutizing theory is what causes such pastoral concern in our minds and hearts. That's why mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend that that is um, that was caught up in this whole critical theory, very involved in uh, Resolution 9 and for it. And it's funny, I had I, I told him, I said, uh, I said, the reason we did by what standards is because we love people and we don't want them to get caught up mm-hmm. in this worldview. People do go away. I said, man, I, we knew it was going to be heavy cost. And it's not because, you know, we're racist or misogynist or and. 
it was funny. He stopped and he goes, well, I've called you all those names. And I said, well, I mean, it, was, it was so weird. It was like talking across a great divide. I'm like, seriously, because mm-hmm. in my world, I mean, that's just silly. Like, no, we, I'm, I'm see the worldview. I see this absolutizing theory. Once you buy it and things start to make sense to people, don't drift mm-hmm. away from that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what you have already heard in watching mm-hmm. Josh Harris do that, quite honestly. And I, I, mm. we can see the threat of it. So we're trying to shepherd folks away from it. That's why I ask you the question, which seems to be yeah. such a pressing one to me. Why can't we get, why, why do I keep having evangelical leaders who I love talk, talk about it as an ally? Stop talking about this as an unexpected yeah. ally. That's not what it is. And yeah. I, I think one of the reasons even Reformed evangelicals are having trouble with this is because of our fragmented thinking. We're so mm. fragmented um, mm. that we don't see that ideas have consequences. If you buy into this idea, it, it's going to shake down. It's going to produce fruit, and you need to be able to see the connection between the idea and the consequence. And you end your article there. Uh, your conclusion is called Ideas mm-hmm. Have Consequences and Analytical mm-hmm. Tools Do Too. So I, I'm I'm trying to gear this toward, I'm thinking about people that might be listening to this, pastors especially, that hear some of this language and they hear, I don't know, 101,072 footnotes from uh, Time and Klein's article. And they think, I don't, I, you know, I'm not a legal scholar. I can't get into this stuff. I don't understand it. I, I want pastors to, one, see their responsibility because this is a philosophy that we're supposed to stand against and, and warn our people about. You don't have to know all the ins and outs and the history of critical theory, but you have, to, you have to be able to understand that there's a God in heaven and all truth is his truth and therefore you need to see the consequences so could you spell out a few of those consequences as you see it that might help a guy like that connect the dots okay this is why it's not an ally because if you buy it it's going to produce this kind of fruit what are some of those can you point out some of those or just yeah i think i mean the you know the central uh, thesis of the of the paper is is really uh, one about preserving our theology. I'm much more interested in knowing our theology well so that we can defend it from all manner of attacks than, you know, re- everyone really diving into critical theory. Uh, one, it's, it's mind slaughter and it's boring, but it, uh, so I don't recommend it, but, uh, not everyone needs to know about every enemy to the nth degree, right? So what I really would love people to do is know their, uh, the, their theology, especially to be uh, you know committed to a confessional outline of your theology uh, that has stood the test of time and has a historical merit to it, um, and to know it so well that when you see uh, something new like critical theory come into the discussion, you're able to identify immediately what are the inconsistencies between the two ways of thinking that it's it is opposed to uh, your pre-commitments that are, are grounded in a historic confession and uh, the, the confession of the church uh, throughout time. And so, in, you know, the central point of this, this article is our view of, of man, of human nature, uh, prohibits us from adopting this way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. And this, even though I go into critical theory, you know, at length trying to, to acquaint people with it, the, the basic... Uh, thing that I want people to grasp about critical theory for the purpose of my argument is that it groups people according to uh, involuntary uh, associations, right? That's the main, that's how it organizes society. So it's based on uh, race, class, sex, sexual orientation, whatever it is, is 
is how it's manifested in our current society. And it groups everybody and evaluates you morally, most importantly, and makes these associations politically actionable. That's what it bases society on. And that is fundamentally inhuman, as I call it, based on uh, Christian commitments to what makes man unique, which is his rational soul, right, which is breathed into him uh, by God at creation, right? So, the, and he's given an intellect and a will, and the will then becomes, you know, putting aside for a moment our sociological considerations, the will is what makes the, its operation is what makes things human. Animals don't have those, they have instincts. And so when you know that, and then an ideology comes along telling you, no, no, the way we're going to evaluate society and life and morality is based on which, which class you're involved in, which, uh, which we predetermine at the outset. Um, and you know, what your, what your background is that should immediately send up red flags to the extent that even without knowing all that much more about it, you can protect your congregation and, and your family from that way of thinking, because you immediately, you know, your own theology so well that you are able to find uh, the things uh, identify the things that conflict with it at the outset. That would be, that would be my, you know, wish for, for regular pastors. Yeah. And I, um, I think you've done that in the article very well. And I, I really believe most pastors and, and most thinking Christians get that. I just think mm-hmm. if you've been involved with the Bible, the Bible's been transforming your thinking at any level, you have this in you. What I, where I mm-hmm. think the point of contention comes or maybe or failure is really with courage and standing mm-hmm. against the onslaught, mm-hmm. being willing to pay the price for saying, no, no, I reject your label of racism. I'm not a racist by your definition. No, we, we are not going to define justice on these terms yeah. because once you do yeah. that, that's where you get labeled the racist, the misogynist, yeah. the homophobe. Yeah. And some of that, you know, I agree with hundred percent with the courage aspect, which is easier said than done. I think Douglas Murray, who's obviously not a, not a Christian or a pastor, as as talked before about that of of the main thing lacking today is just courage yeah. because regular people, uh, even if they don't get all the ins and outs of, of cultural Marxism, can know that it's there's something off right. about it. Right. Um, but there is an aspect too that you know that's one of the frustrating things about certain presentations of at least pieces of critical theory. It's always selective by evangelicals is is the misdefining of it. Uh, in a way that's not consistent with the theorists themselves, but is in a, allows them to kind of bring it in and use it, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and you know, the, seeing things like white fragility defined as all it's doing is pointing out pride. Well, that's that's just not true. That's not what white fragility is doing. Uh, but presenting it that way, then you know, for for pastors that are being put under pressure and are trying to be courageous. When other, you know, intellectual or thought leaders in evangelicalism present this as so easily adopted, it gives them a way out. And so I think some people have capitulated uh, with a false understanding of what they're capitulating to uh, is a problem as well. So that that's something that uh, a lot of pastors are being done a disservice by. But mm. Um, it, even those that would like to be courageous, they're being told this is something that's okay, uh, and it's and it's not. So, 
good point. Yeah, very good timing. Man, it's been so good to have you on the Sword in the Trial podcast and kind of take a deeper look into your article and what we're seeing going on in the evangelical, reformed evangelical world. So we will put this uh, article in the footnotes. Do check it out. Enjoy. Uh, in the show notes, not the footnotes. You'll have plenty. Of, you'll have <laughs> that make 193. Yeah, make 193. No uh, more of those footnotes. So uh, it's been great to have you on time, and we have to do this again sometime. Yes, definitely. And yeah, thank uh, you guys so much, man. And I'm glad to know you're in Naples. You're not far from us, so uh, not far at all. You know, <laughs> you could come a lot closer and still be compliant with all the social distancing uh, guidelines Absolutely. right now. You're allowed to do drive-throughs down here. That's right. To, to drive, okay. Yeah, okay. man. We can do a drive-through conversation or something. But thanks so oh, much for good. being yeah. with us. Hey, we want to remind everybody that uh, for the next week or so, we still have going on a 25% off everything in the Founders Bookstore. So all of our books uh, are on sale for that price, and we've got some wonderful titles. We also got a couple of new titles coming up that you mm-hmm. can be on the lookout for. You want to introduce uh, what's coming? Yeah, Daniel Scheiderer, and uh, the book is called Still Confessing. It's an exposition of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And if you are in the SBC, mark my words, since everyone and their mother doesn't want to acknowledge this, our (laughs) Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention says that a cooperating church, a church that's in the SBC, has to be in general agreement with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. (laughs) Believe it or not, everyone says, no, 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 it does. And it does have teeth. It's not just that you can't give money. It's that you're not going to get the resources and you're not going to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we even removed churches. It was only like three years ago that we removed yeah. a church for not being in keeping with our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 principles and ethical commitments. Does, does this mean that you you, you got to actually practice the Christian religion in order to be in good standing with the SBC you and the Baptist do. Faith and Message? You do. So if you're a <laughs> pagan church... Um, are doing pagan worship. If you're doing your, pagan worship, I want to be clear on this. Now, I don't want to overstep. We 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 love all people, right. just like Jesus. Right. God loves all people. We love all people too. Okay, um, but there are borders to our fellowship, borders. as there have been all throughout the history of the church. And no, you can't you can't preach a false gospel and continue to be in happy cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. So if you want to take a little bit of a look into that confession, do read it. It's online. And we've got a book that is an exposition of it. And you can get it right now uh, on the cheap because we have a sale going on. So check out the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That's the subtitle. The uh, actual title is Still Confessing. 